0: Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their science, to find out they think deeply about the interaction of humor and politics, and really, they just want to work with people they like. Or that it's taken them 30 years of their life to ever use a digital toaster oven. Maybe the last one was just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, welcome to the new listeners. We recently saw a bump in listenership after Judy Simcox's episode, which came out two weeks ago. And we are so glad you're here. If you want to see more resources to help with mental health or vulnerability in science, check out our Twitter. We are at Deeper Than Data. We also now have stickers if you'd like one. We'll send you a few for free while supplies last. If you're interested, send me an email. It's Ben at DeeperThanData.media. Again, it's Ben at DeeperThanData.media. Or you can reach out again on Twitter that is at Deeper Than Data. So, the episode. My, what a treat we have. We have two guests today, both with backgrounds studying political identities, disinformation, and how comedy interacts with both those things. This interview is both humorous and engaging. My mom told me to stop using fantastic to describe our guests, so these guests are f- fine. No, they're better than fine. They're fantastical, fabulous, and really first rate guests. Now let's get to it with Lauren Feldman and Dana (laughs) Galliom. and welcome to Deeper Data. Thank you both for joining.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me too.
0: Yeah, great to have you both here. And this is the first time we've had two people on at the same time. So our audience members will probably be like, hey, this is a little bit new. And why are there three people talking at the same time? But trust us, audience members, this will be really great. Um, so first, I'm going to start out with names and pronouns. And Lauren, I will pass this to you first. I'm going to try my best not to do favorites. So I'm going to do my best as a moderator to go back and forth. Uh, you're both equally cool in my mind so far.
1: My name is Lauren Feldman and pronouns she, her. I'm Dana Young and my pronouns are she, her.
0: Fantastic. Um, I will flip this and Dana, I will go for a physical description of you first and then followed by Lauren.
2: Great. I am um, in my office right now. I am six feet tall. You, you cannot tell when I'm sitting which is good because it's scary. Uh, It's hot. It's like 80 degrees. So I'm wearing a tank top and I'm sitting in front of my bookshelf and my dog may or may not join in the picture.
1: Um, So I am sitting here in my office, which is also a family-ish room. So I have a piano behind me and kids toys. Um, I'm about five, seven. I have blonde-ish hair used to be blonde now it's highlighted blonde uh wearing a black a black tank top because i'm also in new jersey heat like like dana
0: fantastic i am also in a closed room with uh no ac so if we all start to turn like red we know why it's just hot and toasty but i do appreciate you like minimizing ac sounds and all that it's like you've been interviewed before yeah Um, And then I will go to position and roles that you have on your campus. And Lauren, I'll go and start with you first.
1: Sure. I am an associate professor in the Department of Journalism and Media Studies in the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Um, I'm also an affiliate of the Rutgers Climate Institute. And this is
2: Dana. I am a, I just got promoted. So I'm a professor Which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Professor of Communication and Political Science at the University of Delaware, where I also work for the Center for Political Communication as a researcher.
0: Cool. Yes. I'm glad I have both of you on at the same time. One, because you've worked together in the past. And also, I think we all have a deep love of comedy and satire. And so I thought we can definitely get into some deep conversation, but I think this will be also. A fun, goofy conversation at the same time. And we will get to the goofs, I promise. But I actually want to start with probably the hardest question, which is, could you give me a two-minute research pitch that you might tell friends and family members?
2: Great. About what I'm working on right now or what I've worked on in my, in my life? Let's go right now. What's fresh? Oh, gosh. Uh, this is a good exercise to do an elevator pitch because I am in like shoulder deep. Um, Okay, so it's a pitch. So I'm currently working on several projects that all are under the umbrella of the book project that I'm developing, looking at how identity fuels patterns of misinformation. And my work is really looking at political psychology as it is increasingly correlated with other aspects of identity. So racial identity, cultural identity, religious identity, and how these sort of primal associations that are increasingly associated with this political meta-identity create some psychological needs that misinformation can then fill, and that there are incentives through our media environment, through partisan media and social media, and through our political environment that sort of reify those identities and increase our demand for misinformation. That's my pitch. That exa-
0: <laughs> you did it though. And I appreciate it. And that was completely improvised too. So fantastic. Lauren, you've had some, you had some time to think.
1: <laughs> so yeah, my, my research at its broadest focuses on the effects of media on people's knowledge, their opinions, their behaviors. Um, And a lot of my recent research has focused on those questions in the context of climate change. So I'm really interested in how news media cover climate change, how people engage with um, reporting and entertainment that touches on climate change and what effect those media have on um, how much people are concerned about climate change, how willing they are to take political action and so forth. both related to that and not. I have also um, I also do some research on comedy, which you had mentioned earlier. Um, and I published a book, a co-authored book last year called A Comedian and an Activist Walk Into a Bar, The Serious Role of Comedy and Social Justice that looks at the role that comedy can play in um, engaging people with serious issues, including climate change. Um, and then I also do kind of work on media and politics um, more broadly, looking at questions related to misinformation, like Dana talked about. Um, I have a project now that I'm where I'm collaborating with um, an information scientist in my school looking at algorithmic detection of misinformation and whether that might be unfairly biased towards liberal versus conservative news.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, So another tough question for you. So I've for, for both of you, really. So I've looked at your talks. Dana, I read your book. Lauren, your book is on my list. This is, this is how much I love comedy and also shows that I'm academic, that my summer reading list is academic books about comedy. And the more that i read about comedy and had these explanations of it, I have no idea what the hell comedy is in the end. And I'm just wondering if either of you have a specific answer to what comedy actually is.
2: Lauren, do you want to take this? Not really <laughs> all right can I, can I take it okay because comedy and humor are distinct as is laughter so I'll, I'll I'm gonna be a politician and answer the question that I wish you had asked which is what's humor I, I, I like the definition by Khan about you know expectations being violated and you know humor for me I think, The notion of humor as a violation of expectations that cause sort of a temporary feeling of
0: mirth. If you're like me and needed a refresher on the definition of mirth, according to Merriam-Webster, mirth is a gladness or gaiety as shown by or accompanied with laughter.
2: Covers it for me. So therefore, I'm totally being a calm person because I'm defining the content by its effect. I like that. Humor is something that people find
0: funny. That's called punting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I think that's a really valid answer though, because it's so subjective. And even the things that I have found extremely funny in my life are no longer funny. And it's interesting, like Dan, when I was reading your book, you you know, you talk about social identities that are combined with satire. And if people more, if they enjoy satire, they're more likely to be on the liberal side of a political identity. And you give the examples of Family Guy as a pretty good predictive uh, predictor of political affiliation, and High School Ben of Family Guy. Modern Day Ben, I cannot stand it. But that's it's something completely subjective. Where I would put myself in that camp of a uh, you know more liberal political party. Although I'm not necessarily bugging that trend. And things change over time as well, as they should.
2: It's funny watching. Um, I just have such a nostalgic association with a lot of 80s comedies that I just really loved. And I'm like, oh, now my kids are old enough, they can watch these, you know, because they're 11 and 16. And they, my son who's 16, is like, this is so not like inappropriate, like he's a Puritan, but it's like so offensive. Like, why are we watching this? And I'm like, you're right. I'm sorry. I did not recall that this was offensive to all of these different categories of human beings. I'm sorry for that. Because there are cultural dimensions to what we perceive as funny and what we
1: will entertain in the state of play. Donna just mentioned the state of play. And I think that is the piece that is is particularly subjective, right? So you, you have humor that comes from this incongruity or this violation of expectations, but it only sort of elevates itself to the level of of humor and mirth if we are willing to engage in play. And that's going to be really culturally specific and identity driven. And, you know, what one person finds playful, the next person might be like, no, this is totally not something that should be subjected to play.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important, too. And when I, you know, you both have recently just met me, you know, one of you just maybe 15 minutes ago. And I got you to laugh. And for me, that is essentially showing that I have tossed the ball into your court. Essentially, I'm trying to play. You have laughed. You have tossed the ball back to me. And now we're playing as adults, you know, with kind of like the inner child. But it's so true. Like, I don't always want to play the same game with everyone else, nor does everyone want to play the comedy or humor game with me. I'm curious, like, do you have specific comedians that you really revel in or connect with?
1: Yes. I mean, I, I think I will always have a big place in my heart for Jon Stewart, who is, who got me into the study of comedy. I mean, I think, you know, the power of, of the daily show when he hosted it, um, really, you know, planted a seed for me in terms of research. And so, yes, Jon Stewart will always be a favorite like, like Stephen Colbert as well. Um, but through the, the work and interviews that I did um, for the book, I really came to know, you know a number of other different comedians, um, Francesca Ramsey, who's really awesome, Hassan Minhaj, also who got his start um, on The Daily Show, um, W. Kamau Bell. Um, and so, you know, these are comedians who are doing comedy around um, questions of race and identity um, and, and are, are really doing very, very cool work.
2: Um, Right now, in terms of new folks that I just am so excited about, Amber Ruffin is, I just am loving her work. You know, her her show on Peacock is so good. And the the sort of like deep dives that she does sitting at the desk, like looking at big issues, are so jam-packed with punchlines, but they're also so smart. It's like John Oliver-esque, but like with its own twist. So I'm liking that.
0: Okay, I actually want to go back in time so both of you have really cool positions doing great work right now. I want to dive into um childhood a little bit. And I do this by asking everyone, who was your first crush? And Lauren, who was your first crush?
1: My first crush that I remember um <laughs> I was kind of boy crazy as a kid. Um my first crush that I remember was a boy named Rich in 3rd grade in Miss Adams' class. Um I don't remember really why he was my crush. But what I do remember is that Miss Adams had a cabin in the Pocono Mountains. And if you were in her third grade class, you got to go there for an overnight, which is kind of an incredible thing in third grade. And, you know, but it was the 80s. So all sorts of things happened. So she took the class and this boy, you know, was in my class. And and I you know, had my Kodak kid's camera and I must have snapped a picture of him, you know, in the woods of the Poconos. And that's what I remember. Like, I remember having this like picture of this boy in my room that I would, you know, look at later. And it would remind me of that, you know, trip to the Poconos where we got to like, you know, feel free and not like eight-year-olds. So,
2: yeah. (laughs) I, I don't know. This is fascinating, Lauren, because I never would have pegged you as someone who had been boy crazy. I it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that I, too, was boy crazy. And I had a crush on a different boy every year, and I can tell you who it was. So, like, kindergarten, it was Lucas, and first grade, it was Josh, and second grade, it was Brian Clater, and third grade, it was Aaron Luce. And that's the one that's interesting, though, because he liked me back. And then he would draw pictures of people sliding down rainbows together holding hands and like wrap it in a ribbon and put it in my little mail cubby. And I truly, I mean, I can still, even thinking about now, I feel, I can feel like filled with warmth. Like it just to have somebody, the first time that you are like crushing and then they like you back, I was like, I could float. away. <laughs> it was pretty great.
0: And no one, you know, at least in my adult life has drawn me going down a rainbow with them.
1: Yeah, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) I know. I got to tell you, I
2: have asked my parents, where are those pictures? I don't know where they went. I need to find them because they were flipping adorable.
0: Yes. And if you do, can you send us your updates?
2: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. If I found those, that would be amazing. I wish I, I mean, I wouldn't have thrown them out, right?
0: I don't think so. It seems like you're way too boy crazy to let any of this momentum go.
2: (laughs) I have all my letters from, you know, don't tell my husband. But
0: yeah, they're all in the closet. Yeah. Now, I'm also curious, like, in your childhood, I, you know, other scientists that I've interviewed have told me, oh, they were the kid who had tons of bugs in their pockets. They're always playing in dirt. It's a little bit harder to go into a field with political and social science, I think, as a kid and start resonating. Did you feel like you had any inklings towards those fields as a kid? Or do you think that came Maybe middle school, high school time?
2: I am exactly who I thought and everyone else thought I was going to be because I grew up in New Hampshire, loved politics because it was the first in the nation primary state, met a bunch of candidates, did summer classes in middle school at the local college where I took classes in clowning, journalism, and satire in the 1988 election. So, like, there's no, I am. If you put me through the machine, that is, I am who that person was going to come out as.
1: Yeah, I am not. Um, I, I, you know, I took a very convoluted path and I don't think I ever really knew what I was going to be. And I still kind of don't know what I'm going to be. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I've always been really interested in, in psychology and the mind and how it works, right, which makes sense. You know, I think at one point, you know, in high school, I was super interested in abnormal psychology, and I think I thought I wanted to, like, hunt serial killers and, like, get inside their brains, which would be really, really awful, I think, <laughs> now. Um, but I was always interested in, in in how the mind works, not not so much the bug stuff and the, the hard science stuff, but trying to figure out, you know, how people think, which is still a part of, of what I do. But I was... You know, I was an English major and in undergrad and, you know, I did a lot of creative writing and wrote poems. And and I think that's really how I got to the study of of comedy and even media more broadly, that I was interested, like, in the power of storytelling and narrative and language as a way to, um, you know, engage people and and reveal people and, and, and pull people.
0: Did you also do any extracurricular activities to, like, add to your English degree or experiences?
1: No. Um, I mean, in college, I like edited um, a literary journal briefly. Um, But in my younger years, no. I mean, I was like a constant reader. I was like one of those kids that walked down the street with their nose in a book. I didn't want to stop reading. Um, But my extracurricular stuff was mostly sports. I gotta say, I, when Lauren and I wrote a paper together, it's like a gazillion
2: years ago now. And I very quickly learned that Lauren is like exceptionally good writer just like pithy good flow and I remember saying to you as we were working on paper I'm like how
1: how do you do this she was
2: like Oh, was an English major.
1: <laughs> I was like there you are oh, well, well thank you but I but I feel like I've lost some of that um it in engaging in academic writing, right, because it is so sort of linear and formulaic. And I feel like I lost that other half of myself that would like write poems and experiment with language. Um, and that's really why I loved your book, Dana. Um, I, you know, I, I thought your book was just like such an amazing marriage of like serious academic rigorous scholarship, but that was still infused with like your voice and your story. And I and, and loved it.
2: <laughs> that means so much from you. You have no idea. You have no idea. And you know what your book also you might feel like you are more like straight social scientists, but your book reads so accessible compared to like obviously your peer reviewed work I feel like it was far more conversational and accessible.
1: Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we we tried, um, we tried. So I'm glad it came it came across that way.
0: Well, Lauren, that's uh, that's a good segue because I was going to possibly maybe towards the end of this interview um, try to get a free copy of your book from you. As this is a legit media business, <laughs> I kind of feel like I impress, and it. <laughs> As press, it may behoove you yeah. uh, to get a free copy out. No pressure. No, I, um, I will send you a copy for sure. <laughs> nice. It worked. And it's on record. So you have we'll to. Need to it. And Lauren did send me this book within a week. What a gem. One thing I actually did want to ask you both, because I knew you had collaborated. Um, and one thing I haven't talked about really on this podcast is when you're seeking collaborations, do you primarily try to find people that you think you may enjoy working with? Is it about specific subject material and what makes a great collaborator?
2: I, this is because I'm like, how do I want to say this out loud? Okay. Yeah. No, I just want to work with people who I like. (laughs) I just want to, I just want to have a good time. I just want to have fun. And by the way, but that's like, that's a little bit misleading because the people who I like are also the people who I would respect, who I like, if I feel like you're a slacker or you're not going to get your stuff done, I'm not going to want to work with you. I'm also not going to be like like you. <laughs> makes you sound terrible. But yeah, I'm about having a good time. I'm also about a marriage of um, skills and epistemology. So right now I am working, like when I worked with Lauren, Lauren's like a statistical goddess. And I was like, time series class in it, don't remember how to do it. Thank gosh she knew. <laughs> right now I don't I'm know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel better. Right now I'm working on a bunch of projects um with Amy Blakely, who's a health healthcom person who's also like a statistical genius. And I know stats like I know how to play guitar, which is like just to sing in a coffee shop, not to like really do a solo, you know. At least now I just don't feel like I do anymore. Um so that's another thing, pairing, pairing strengths.
1: Yeah, back to collaborators. Yes, you—you you defi- I definitely want to have fun. I want to work with people who I like, who I respect, um, who bring something complimentary to the table. And I think, you know, as you work with people... You real you you figure out whose working styles are compatible to your own because no. you might really like somebody, but then once you start a working relationship, it doesn't it doesn't jibe so well. Um, you know, so I have a very long time collaborator, Saul Hart. We've been working together for like twelve years, and like it just works. It just is great. Um, so I'm really grateful for wonderful collaborators. Um, I would not be able to to go it alone in this in this business. No.
0: Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was thinking too. It, um, you know, part of this podcast is to show the human side of scientists and academics, and it might counterintuitively be seen as like the most academic thing to work basically on the science, and that's what you go for. But if you bring the human factor, you have to work with people that you like, and if you work with people that you like, you're going to be more productive and more successful. Um, and we can't turn off our social brains. Um, you know, I'm I'm one of the belief, like, science can, is, is inherently biased by the people that are working on it. Not that it can't get to any good results, but I think we're really kidding ourselves if we're saying we can only be focused on logic and data without bringing in emotions.
2: One thousand percent. I teach our graduate seminar on the philosophy of science, and I am um, very much team- You know, all observations are theory-driven. You cannot separate the science from the scientist. It's it's all messy, especially when you're studying people. I mean, also when you're studying hard science, but especially when you're studying people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering this, uh, Lauren, after I saw your talk when you virtually visited uh, the University of Wisconsin not too long ago. And I guess this could really go for both of you but how do you assess something that is funny? So you're using like funnier die clips. How do you actually gauge that as a metric or know that would be something people would find funny? There's a little bit of hit, hit or miss and maybe it kind of goes into a little bit of the bias of the scientist too. There's I I don't, I don't know a funny scale, but I haven't really looked in this literature either.
1: Right. I, you know, I, that, that's a really interesting question. I mean, some of it is subjective, right? I looked at clips and said, okay, I think this is funny. <laughs> let's let's use it. Um, lots of other people thought it was funny. It got, you know, a million views or, you know, 10,000 likes or whatever it might be. Um, but then you can also measure it, of course. And that's part of, you know, what we did in, in the study that, that you're talking about. We wanted to see how funny did people or how entertaining did people find these clips? And then how much did that entertainment value drive their engagement with the issue which was climate change
2: yeah for me i feel like it, one of the things Lauren, you might find this interesting because my husband pj w- um, was an english major and when we were first together we would be talking about the meaning of different texts and we would have this total divide it was like a epistemological like we weren't even talking to each other because what he was basically saying was that the meaning of the work is in the work because he very much is into literary criticism and stuff and I'm like the meaning of the work is not in the work the meaning of the work is in the people who consume it and it took a long time to figure out oh wait this is why we don't understand each other on by the way literally like this these are the debates we have because we're super cool and sexy. Um, But but that's why when when it comes to those questions about what's funny and what's not, yeah, you kind of, when you're selecting stimuli, you're like, my hunch is this is funny. But it's all about the pretest. And if the pretest says it's not funny, even if you think it's funny, it's like, I guess I was wrong because empirically (laughs) it's not funny.
1: Right. Yeah. And that has certainly happened. Like I've picked... Clips that I think are really funny and and yeah, they just don't fly in the pretest. So that's
0: that's that. <laughs> I'm wondering, like you're studying these larger systems that we are all part of, whether it's social identity, political identity, you know, how we feel about comedy. Do you ever catch yourself falling into some of the same I don't want to say behavioral traps but behaviors of participants that you might be measuring. If you notice like one party, one social group or political party leans to one direction and have a typical response, do you catch yourself and be like, Oh man, I, they got to me as well.
2: Uh, yes. I feel like um, in some ways, cause I do a lot of, on the psychology of the left and right. In a lot of ways, I am a textbook liberal in how I respond to things, but then there are other ways in which I demonstrate the psychological profile of social and cultural conservatives, too, and I can see that as well. I'm doing a lot of work on intuitionism versus rationalism, and people who value gut and emotions as a way of coming to truth, and I'm like, that's me. And I'm like, well, I probably shouldn't say that, because if that's me, I shouldn't be a scientist. But... That's me, but I use science as a check because I have my gut. I have my emotion. I make quick judgments. They're usually wrong. And then guess what? Science requires you, requires that you try to falsify your claim. You have to test it. You can't just be like, this is what I think. So maybe I'm exactly the person who should be a scientist.
1: Well, going back to your original question, you know, I think, I think we're all motivated reasoners. I don't think there's any way to get around that. Right. Like we, see what we want to see and we you know consume information that that supports our existing opinions and we're ready to counter arguing anything um that disagrees with us and i have caught myself doing that you know a lot of times and you know particularly in the context of covid and and some of the science around covid right like i am i am worried about covid right and so when i Sometimes when I come across information that's like, "Oh, you don't need to worry about COVID," right? I'm like, "Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about that," right? Um, because I spend a lot of time telling people we still need to wear masks, like the Delta variant, you know, all this stuff. Um, but I... but a. I, um, but I catch myself, right? So understanding these concepts and understanding how they work, I think, is really important from a media literacy perspective, right? So if other people could identify that in themselves, um, you know, it might help um, push back against some of the, the kind of polarization processes that we, that we see in our culture.
0: So we had a previous guest on here, Mike Wagner, who I think possibly both of you may know. And he was really fun to talk about. And I asked him this question, so I'll pose it to you as well as people who might be uh, more experienced in dealing with conversations about social political issues and studying them, how do you talk to your families about social and political issues?
1: Most of my family tends, most of the family who I talk to about political and social issues tend to agree with me on political and social issues. You know, I have, um, you know, a a sister and and brother-in-law who are like, a little bit, you know, lean a little bit righter than I do, but like we engage really thoughtfully around the issues and you know, at the end of the day they're they're still sort of aligned with my my thinking. I have you know, my my husband's family, I mean he grew up in in South Carolina. Um it is, you know, full on Trump country where where his family is from and I you know, I don't engage in political discussions with them because I just think They would not be productive, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, so I... Yeah, I am a social scientist and an improvisational comedian. And everyone who I interact with is wicked liberal, as we say in New Hampshire. Um, That being said, you know, my husband is a prosecutor and he keeps me honest, right? Because he will he sees a very different world than I do. Um, So those conversations are really helpful to me in terms of family members. I do have a couple of family members that are more conservative, but they're also, they are conservative and also not fans of Trump. Um, So we can talk really, I, I love those conversations actually, because I find it's so reassuring that, yeah, we really disagree on a lot of public policy issues. And for good reason. I live kind of in an urban environment. They live in a rural place. Of course, they're going to be all about the Second Amendment and this and that. Like they just have a different life experience that informs their views. But it's also so reassuring because they're, they support the idea of you know, free and fair elections and the constitution and that kind of stuff. So those conversations I like a lot. It is bizarre that we are so geographically, culturally and socially sorted that I really do not interact with anyone in my daily life who is a Trump supporter. I just don't. And I think that after the 2016 election, journalists and and scholars were like, how did we not see this coming? we have to understand these people. And I'm like, I thought that too. Um, I still think that a little bit, but I also think that there are giant cultural forces that are pushing us apart. And I don't know that I individually can just disrupt that. I'm hoping that some of my work will help disrupt that.
0: Well, maybe this will make you proud. I I went to go visit family um, at the end of May, early June. And on the flight back from Cincinnati to Chicago, I was sitting next to this guy who's like 6'5", probably like 250. I did not give a physical description of myself, but I am 5'7 and maybe 140 pounds. No one has seen me and thought like I'm intimidated by this guy. Um, But, you know, we just start talking about random things and like what we're doing. We're bonding over how families can drive us uh, mad at some points. And eventually we get on the idea of uh, politics and like social identity. And I am, I think also at that point, wearing my NPR AF uh, shirt, (laughs) which is sanctioned by NPR. That was officially from their shop. So I wasn't, you know, hiding any preferences by any means. And I think the... Uh, other people on the plane were just like starting to turn their heads as they heard this conversation go and wondering, just like, I think this little, this little 30 year old man is going to get pummeled if he like keeps talking, but it wound up being like a pretty good conversation. So I forgot to mention this in the actual interview, but interestingly enough, when i was talking to this guy on the airplane, I cited a book in my hands that I was reading which was Dana's book. So this is definitely coming back full circle. I think a lot of times, if we were going to go for like a whole societal distribution about maybe where, they, where people land on really conservative or very liberal policies, I would say there's probably a large stack in the middle. But the most vocal people, um, as pointed out by some of your research, are those people who are at the very far ends. And I think most people are able to have a bit of a conversation. Granted, you have to kind of be willing to play or respect the other person in that conversation, and that does not always happen. So I did not wind up being pummeled <laughs> on the on the plane ride, but it was a good experience.
2: Isn't it wild that that doesn't happen more in like our daily life? Like, I mean, that's the thing that's especially like for us more where and you too Ben that the most people have those experiences at work right? Like Diana Mutz's work would say that that's where people are experiencing those interactions, not, not in higher ed. <laughs> you
0: know? I think the pandemic really helped and that everyone is commiserating in some sort of way. No one is, no one would have taken this year really, I think. Um, and so we can all just be like this, no matter what happens, something sucks in your life right now. And we're all dealing with something which hopefully makes us more vulnerable and able to talk to other people.
2: I would have thought that, except all of the data on perceptions of COVID, behaviors around COVID, it is not just polarized, but like over the process of the pandemic, those gaps grew. So yes, everyone was like, yeah, this sucks. But also like this sucks for different reasons. Pew put out a thing. I feel like such a jerk, Ben. You had this like nice wrap up comment. And I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> no,
0: shoot my optimism down. I'm a scientist. I'll take it.
2: Good. Uh, Pew put out this data that basically, yeah, liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans, both think the pandemic sucked. And for Republicans, they thought it sucked because they hated wearing masks. And Democrats are like, yeah, it sucked because (laughs) people are dying. No, don't quote me on that. I don't know. I know the mask thing is, is why Republicans didn't like it. But like, How we even think about why it
0: sucked is different. So obviously working on like hot topic subjects, whether it's politics or Lauren, you know, you're also wrapping science and comedy into climate change and some other social justice issues. Are there personal tolls that it takes on either of you for working on these types of areas?
1: Yeah. You know, I I think the hardest part for me is feeling like, questioning whether the work I'm doing really can make a difference and whether I'm asking the right questions because these are such huge pressing issues, right? Like climate change is here. Like we're grappling with it. We're not doing what we need to do. And I'm like doing a little experiment, you know, that like manipulates how we talk about it. And, you know, so it, it, it's, really just kind of leads to a whole lot of self-reflection, like, is there a better way for me to contribute to this problem? And like, of course, I can contribute, you know, in my personal life in, you know, activism and so forth. But but I think, you know, I'm always grappling with, am I asking the right questions? Am I contributing in a way that really is meaningful? Is anybody paying attention to the work that I'm doing?
2: One thousand percent. I I have anxiety anyway, and I can, especially over the last year and a half, studying mis and disinformation related to COVID and the election and what's happening with American democracy, I'm like, what I, does anything I'm doing matter at all? And that's when I realized, like, okay, doing media appearances does matter. You should have seen the crazy, like, crazy good emails that I got after I did. I did something on CNN and MSNBC and then my TED Talk. And I was inundated with emails from people who were, like, talking about how, you know, this this is helping me think about how to reconnect with my brother or sister who believes in conspiracy theories or whatever. And I'm like, okay, so that's a vector of influence. Like, that is something... makes me feel purposeful. I also feel like working on books is so liberating. I really hate peer review. I hate the whole process. I am, my brain is all over the place. Like I want to be able to do like Lauren said, I want to be able to tell stories in the first person and then weave in and out, out of theory. And like, talk about a, a theory, talk about empirical research, and then talk about how it relates to like how I parent my kids or whatever. and the the handcuffs of peer review are very constraining and I that frustrates me. But I put on my hat and I'm like, okay, here I am. I'm like waiting for peer review now. Okay. And then for my book, I'm like, I do what I want. I you know. <laughs> And that makes me feel better because I feel like that's the kind of stuff that people will read and understand and you can put together big ideas and I also don't like being handcuffed to data which makes me a bad scientist but maybe not because I, I like the idea of going big and thinking really broadly theoretically and bolstering that with empirical data um, but yeah, no, the whole thing is grounds for complete existential crisis all the time. And I'm like, why am I here? Am I doing enough to do something important? Who
0: knows? Yeah, I, I like your comment about not being tied to data. And I think it's super valid because even if you have the most rigorous study, there's going to be faults and limitations. And as science, you have to repeat it you know, every once in a while. At least we should. And even the meta-analyses that we have that are the sums of other studies have weaknesses and limitations and have to change. Um, You know, science is so much about failure and discovering new information that it has to be repeated time and time again.
2: Yeah, if you look back at the most important work from our freaking field, when I say our freaking field, I mean political communication, that made the biggest impact, do you know that the ends in their cells were like 30? If you look at Iyengar and Kinder, you look at McCombs and Shaw, You know why why their ideas were so freaking good? Because they were not handcuffed to these empirical demands that have been put on us by this big data baloney. I will move my soapbox to the
1: side. But but I, you know, I agree entirely. And I think it's, you know, if there are kind of future, you know, grad students and social scientists listening, like, I think it's so important to remember that you don't need to lose your voice or give up your voice in academic and scientific writing and i think you know we were trained and we were trained similarly to like tether all of your arguments so closely to the data like you write these peer reviewed papers and it's the literature tells us this and therefore I hypothesize this and the results say this, but they don't say anything more than exactly this, right? And like, so you can't make those arguments and draw those conclusions and, and, um, you know, the, you know, Donna said how she's gotten such great feedback from her media appearances. It's because she's telling stories and she's talking in a way that that people connect with. And they're not going to connect with P values and they're not going to connect with the therefores and thuses of our peer reviewed writing. And and so I think like super important. Yeah.
2: You know what? I love that you just said they're not going to connect with the therefore and thuses because I'm working on, on my book and word keeps trying to suggest that I changed something to say, therefore. And I'm like, screw you, word. I don't want
0: therefore. That's funny. Yeah, Alec always tries to correct any contractions that I have too. And he's like, no, I want to be casual intentionally. Another example of like getting away from p-values in academics, like you have books in libraries where average people can go access this information. And maybe it's a little bit out of their realm um, of something that they normally read. But at least it's there. It's a high, you know, via library, they don't really have to pay anything to read this versus like academic journals where they have to pay like 60 plus to read it one time um, and also have to find it. And Lauren, I want to go back to um, a comment you were saying, like, am I doing enough in my role? I'm, I'm curious, you know, after self-reflection, do you feel like you're doing work that best aligns with your values and strengths? Because I've, I've wrestled with this as a white cis man from pretty average background, like middle class, you know, decent family. Um, it's like, how can I push everyone else forward? And I felt like, okay, I can interview people. I can represent people who are typically underrepresented in science, get lots of different views. This, is, this podcast is one way that I, I feel like I can do this. Um, at the same time, I still feel like I could do more, but I know my abilities to ask people questions, be silly and goofy, is keeping to who I am and also, I think, using the strengths to get a different perspective or highlight the perspectives of others.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think that's right, right? We can all always be doing more and we can, you know, second-guess ourselves all day long. Um, but, like, you know, we all have a specific skill set, right? And I am probably most well-suited to analyzing quantitative data and producing those p-values and designing experiments. You know, that's what gets me excited. And so that kind of work is probably how I can best contribute. Um, You know, I, I, with with the book, um, you know, in part because of my co-author who brought a different set of skills, you know, we did more qualitative interviews, and I loved that, right? And so I would I would like to do more of that kind of work, which I never have really done um, before, um, in, in the future. Um, but I'll but I'll also say, in addition to research, we've been talking a lot about research, how important the teaching piece is, right? And so sometimes when I'm second guessing the impact of my research, I remember that I'm in the classroom, like talking to the leaders of tomorrow. And so like, maybe that's where I'm going to potentially have the biggest impact when it comes to helping to solve climate change, because I'm getting these, you know, you know, my students to think about it in new ways and think about how they can, you know, harness media in ways that actually might be productive for solving, you know, our democratic crisis, our, our climate crisis, and so forth. I
2: love that. I, I, I feel like I don't know about you, Lauren, but I feel like during the pandemic, I did, I figured out how to teach on Zoom, you know, but God, I just miss, I miss their faces like in front of me. And because um, it is, it is such, so gratifying to have those conversations and to see like, yes, they are making connections and putting things together and that's going to inform what they're going to do in the world. Um, just so cool.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for um, sharing that too. I like getting these like more personable and questions that don't have great answers to them. It's all kind of made up in what we think is the best way to run our lives. And it's probably the same question that we've been asking ourselves as humans for the entire time that we've existed. And with that big thought, we're going to go on to something silly. So we're going to go <laughs> to our improvised game. To start, though, I need uh, a few different things from both of you. Lauren, could you give me a number and an animal? And they don't have to be related.
1: 17 and octopus.
0: And then Dana, I need an object from you and a famous person.
2: Um, how about a razor? How about we do Sammy Davis Jr.
0: Also quick question for both of you. How do you spell razor? I've forgotten how to spell razor. Not that it matters, but I'm just curious.
1: I think it's R-A-Z-O-R. Yeah, I think it's R-A-Z-O-R. <laughs> Could be wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're the quote unquote smart people, right? Um, OK, so here is our game. So all three of us are going to answer question together as a one-brained mastermind. So this game, as I know it, is mastermind. To answer the question, we will say one word alternating among us to form complete sentences. When it's your turn and you feel like a sentence is done, you'll just say period. So for example, if I asked like, what's your favorite flavor of chewing gum? And if Dan has started, Dan would say, my, I could go next, favorite, Lauren, and so on, until you know we get to the end and say, peppermint, it's my turn next and I say period. And so for each of these two, for each question that'll be proposed, we'll, we can do a few sentences. And whenever it's your turn and you feel like we have answered to your heart's content, you can say problem solved instead of period, and it'll be over. Ooh. Okay. Well, thanks to both your suggestions. Our first question is I want to teach a dog how to roll over, but the dog has 17 legs. What should I do? First, you
1: should take
0: the dog outside and
2: put his collar on his neck, period. Then you should decide
0: what
1: to call his paws on
0: his feet, (laughs) period. Lastly,
2: you can make it clear to the dog that it is a dog. Problem solved.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Okay.
2: You are a dog.
0: (laughs) Rolls over immediately. It was just confused about all of its 17 legs and just needed to know what it was. Um, okay, our next question is I'm afraid my partner might be cheating on me because I found a razor in their sock drawer. How can I start a conversation with them about this? You should
1: tell them that they
0: are responsible
1: for their actions. Period. And take them to a closet
2: where something happens
0: to
1: them period. Ouch. (laughs) They never exclaimed when they got. Razored. Problem solved.
0: (laughs) (laughs) From the experts themselves. Murdering people in our closets. All right. Our second to last question is, how can we stop octopi from taking over the world? Few. Octopi.
1: Understand. That. They. Can.
0: Be. Aggressive.
1: And. And take over the
0: world. Period.
1: And if they take their
0: tentacles
2: up to
0: the
1: sky, sky, they would die. (laughs) Period.
0: Lastly,
2: they elect
0: a
1: president who went to the
0: stratosphere
1: and killed George period (laughs) just George. (laughs) Just problem solved.
0: <laughs> problem solved. Okay. Okay. Our last one. <laughs> this will be interesting. Sammy Davis Jr. won't stop calling me. What should I do?
1: Announce your intentions to Sammy Davis Jr. and hide in. The closet. Period. Take. The. Phone. From. Your. Room. To. The. Closet. Period. Then. Call. Your. Mother. Period. Say something to your mother and whisper something <laughs> to your mother.
2: <laughs> period. In the closet, bake a Cake as a hat. Then take that
0: cake
1: to Sammy.
0: Problem solved. <laughs> okay. I don't think I have to say this, but just in case, uh, as a disclaimer, do not use any of these recommendations from all of us. If we all wrote books about it, these questions or answers to the question, I'm sure it'd be uh, much better. Thank you both for being on the podcast. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, really insightful. And I'm glad I actually got to hang out with both of you at the same time. You could have not made the first three-person interview so easy. So I appreciate it. It
1: was so fun. It was so fun to see you, Lauren, too. Oh, you too. Ben, thank you for bringing Dan and me together. It's been a long time, so this was super fun.
0: I am hoping to expect some rainbows.
1: Oh, I hope I find that note.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I really enjoyed listening to Lauren and Dana discuss their struggle with hoping their work has an impact on the world. I know I've definitely struggled with that, too. But I'd wager both you and I have been impacted by some of the words you listened to today. I don't know if you noticed either, but in the beginning of this episode, especially when we were kind of just doing the warm up, I struggled a lot with Dana's name at the beginning, but she was fantastic about it. And like my mom said, I overuse fantastic, but I'm keeping that in here this time, mom. At the end of this episode, I make fun of myself for messing up Dana's name. More fun episodes to come. And if you want stickers, again, feel free to send me a message on Twitter, at Data, or an email, which is ben at deeperthanddata.media. We've got limited supply, so get them while you can. Um, We'll have more swag coming down the pipeline, but this is our first iteration of physical stuff. And don't we all love stuff? And you can help promote the podcast that way, too. So until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush is a production of Deeper Than Data Media. This episode was edited by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Marketing, distribution, and additional support by Jevin Lorty and Lauren Trader. I'm going to try to be funny and keyword try to be funny at points during the recording. So I may poke a little fun of you um, or some of your answers. It's out of love and respect. So feel free to do the same. Uh, (laughs) um, Dana? Yes, Ben? Already, you can tell this is ripe uh, for quick witty comments from your improvisational background to make fun of me.
1: Ben, did the um, video end up anywhere.
0: We're just you're just using audio. V- just using audio. So, um, yeah, if you want to pick your nose, <laughs> if you want to flip me off, <laughs> if I can't get your name down in time, <laughs> you can flip me right off, and no one will know. If you're like me, and you, if you're like me, if you're like me, do you like knees? If you're like me, and you. Me... If you like me if like me, you like me Do you
1: like me?